you take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2 as we continue our study in the book of Philippians. We're going to talk about lighting up the darkness. We're going to talk about being the light of God in this world. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read beginning in verse 12 down through verse 18. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without uh, complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. Father, in these next few minutes as we continue studying in the book of Philippians, I pray that you'll challenge our hearts to recognize that we can be lights in a dark world. Help us, Lord, to shine forth your love and your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. I don't know how many of you were able to watch the most recent launch of the two astronauts, SpaceX, and watch it go up into space. I wasn't able to see it live. I watched it on a replay. But it's always fascinating, isn't it? Through all the years that you've seen all of the different space launches, it's always fascinating. It's always amazing to watch all of that incredible power as it pushes two people or more into space. And now, you know, they're making the circle around the earth and joining up with the International Space Station. It's just a fascinating things to behold. You know, one of the great things about having somebody in outer space like that is that they can take pictures looking back at the earth. And if you've ever seen any of those pictures, you know how beautiful they can be. If you haven't seen them, you need to Google them and, and go look them up. There can be some incredibly beautiful pictures. I think one of the most beautiful are, is the one that makes it look like this big, giant blue marble that's just sort of floating out there in nothingness. And it's an incredibly beautiful scene that they're looking at day in and day out as they make that circle around the earth. There's another picture that they have from outer space that is also very moving if you've seen it. It's when the part of the earth they're looking at is dark. It's, it's nighttime. And in the midst of that darkness, you see all of this light coming up out of the darkness. Uh, whether it's the lights of a city or the lights of a factory, even from all of those miles away, from looking from outer space back at us, they can see the light that is shining out of that darkness. And, and that's the image that I want you to get in your minds this morning as you think about the passage of Scripture that we're talking about today. We live in a dark world. We're going to see that in just a moment. We live in a dark world, and God intends for us to be the lights that shine out of that darkness. And he's going to tell us in the verses that we read today, which we won't be able to cover all in this message, We'll have to continue it for another message, but he begins to tell us how we can shine as these lights out of this darkness in which we live. And so where I want the message to sort of focus is at the end of verse 15, 
where he says that in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I think you'll agree that we live in a crooked and perverse generation. A crooked means like a stick. It's crooked. It's not straight. You might pick up a stick and see all of the twists and turns in that stick. The, the underlying Greek word gives us our English word, scoliosis, referring to somebody who has a spine that is twisted or turned in some fashion that creates pain and difficulty for them. So when he says the world is crooked, it's not straight. It's not on the straight path. Uh, there's twists and turns in this world of evil that are around us. And then he amplifies it when he uses the word perverse. He, he takes it to the next level. Not only is the world we live in crooked, but the world we live in is perverse. And you'd have to agree. In, in a world where you can murder babies in their mother's womb and do so legally, in, in a world where your DNA doesn't determine whether you're male or female, it's what you're feeling about yourself at any, at any given moment, in a world where violence and rioting will prevail, where murders are happening, in a world where drugs and alcohol are dominant in so many people's lives and lists like that can go on, you have to recognize that we live in a darkened world that is crooked and perverse, crooked and perverse. And God says to us that I want you to be the light in that world. I want you to shine as lights in the world in the midst of that darkness, like that scene from the astronauts looking back at the earth when they're looking at the dark, the, the evening time, the nighttime, and they see the lights coming out of that darkness. What he says is that out of the darkness around us, he wants us to be that light so that the world around us can see the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's three simple phrases that I want to give to you. Two of them we're going to look at today. One of them I'll have to put off until next week. But I hope in these two phrases that you can begin to, to, to remember this passage. The next time you come through it, you'll have an idea of what it says to you, and you can dig even deeper into it. These three phrases, first of all, we have to work it out. Second, we have to talk it up. And thirdly, we have to see it through. Now, this first phrase, work it out. Go back to verse 12 with me for a moment. He says, therefore, my beloved as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation. Let's stop there for a moment. Anytime you see the word therefore, you ask what it's there for. It's always a connecting word. It's a word that ties you to what has just gone before. And if you can remember from the previous message, what goes before is one of the greatest Christological passages about the incarnation of Christ, about the exaltation of Christ. Jesus came as a servant and was obedient, the scripture says, even to the place of death. And now he's been exalted back to the Father at the right hand of the Father. And every knee will bow and declare him to be Lord. You can either do it now or you can do it at the judgment. But every knee will bow and declare him to be Lord. And it's in that context that Jesus was obedient and he is the Lord that he comes and says, I want you to be obedient. And your obedience is to reflect itself in you working out your salvation, to work out your salvation. Now, notice he doesn't say work for your salvation. You can work the rest of your days as long as you can live and as many good works as you can do, as many noble things as you can do, and you can never earn the favor of God where God would give you entrance into his presence. It'll never happen. It's not of works, the scripture says, lest any man should boast. 
So when he says work it out, he's not talking about work for your salvation. He's also not saying work to keep your salvation. What God has given to you is a gift that he won't ever take away from you. The salvation that you enjoy is something that he has imparted to you that he will never take away from you. And you're not working today. You and I are not working today in order to hold on to the salvation that God has worked within us. As if if we don't do so, we'll lose what we have. When he says here that we're to work it out, he means to work it outwardly. What God has worked inwardly in saving us We're supposed to allow him to work outwardly through us. We're supposed to let the salvation that has taken place inside of us express itself openly so that other people can see. This idea of working it out means work to the full or to completion. It means to carry something to its logical conclusion. And will you notice again what he says? He says, work out your own salvation. I I can't work your salvation out. And you can't work my salvation out. You have to work out your own salvation. This is not something somebody can do for you. This is something you have to choose to do. You have to choose to cooperate with God. You have to work along with God. He saves you. He does this work in you. Now he wants to do this work through you, but you have to cooperate in order for that work to be accomplished. You're saved because you personally and individually received the Lord Jesus for yourself. But now he is at work in you, and he wants to work what is in you outward so that others can see what has happened to you. Uh, This whole idea of work it out is continuous. This is something that began the day you trusted Jesus, and it goes on every day of your life until you see Jesus face to face. In theology, we call that sanctification. God is taking us from where we are to where we ought to be. He's taking us from what we are to what we ought to be. He's always at work within us, but not unless we cooperate with him. He may have saved our souls, but we have to be willing to work with him and work out what he has worked in each each of us. There is this whole matter of of work work it out. And I want you to notice something else. There's a combination between divine enablement and human responsibility. He goes on in verse 13, he says, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do. You see those two words, to will and to do? Who does that? It's God. God saves you. He does a work in you. Now he wants to do a work through you. What he's worked inwardly, he wants to work outwardly, but you have to cooperate with him. It's he who gives you the desire It's he who does this work within you to will and to do. There's there's divine enablement and there's human responsibility. You know, you have to wonder if in your heart there is no desire to be obedient to the Lord and there is no desire to follow Christ and there is no desire to have your salvation worked outwardly where others can see it, where what God has done inwardly, others can see outwardly. If there is no desire, is the reason for you to stop and ask the question, is something wrong in my relationship with Jesus Christ? Because it is he who works in you both to will, to give you the desire to do what he's telling you to do, but then he gives you the enablement. He gives you the power He gives you the ability to be able to do what he says. Christianity, 
Please get this, young people. Christianity is not you doing the best you can, as hard as you can, as long as you can, just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and saying, you know, I'm going to live this way. Christianity is about God working in you and God enabling you to do what you could never have done on your own. That's what God intends. He intends both divine enablement and he intends human responsibility. There's a combining of these two, but he wants us to work it out. Are you with me? He wants us to work it out. He wants us to work it out. That little Greek word that's translated to work out was used about math. When you had a problem, it was written on the board, and you had to work it out. You remember when you were in algebra class, algebra, geometry, and trigonometry, the three subjects that I hated most. Some of you loved them most. And they put all those letters with all those little numbers beside those letters, and they work out this problem. Our our football coach was our uh, algebra teacher, my algebra teacher, uh, Coach Floyd. He was my algebra teacher. And he, big old husky, strong, muscular guy. And he'd go to the chalkboard. They don't use chalkboards anymore. So you kids that don't know what that is, that's okay. They'd go to the chalkboard and they'd take the chalk and he'd write out this problem. X plus Y equals Z. Had all these letters in it with all these little numbers. And then he'd give us a, a few minutes. He said, I want you to work out this problem. That's what he means when he says to work out your salvation. You're to figure it out. You're to go through this, uh, go through this process so that you get, the, you get the answer. You get the evidence. You get the result to work it out. Work out your salvation. This word for work out is used in mining. Maybe we'll understand that even better, living in a mountain state. You have to go into the soil And you have to work out the coal or the ore or the gold or the copper. My daddy worked around the copper mines at times. You have to go into the soil. And what do you do? If you want the coal, if you want the ore, if you want the gold, if you want the copper, you have to work it out. You have to go into it and work it out. That's what he's telling us. Like resolving a problem so you have the answer. Like going into the soil and working it out so that others can see the results. You're to work out your salvation, your own salvation. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. You've got to make this choice yourself. I'm going to do more than just get into heaven. I'm going to let God live his life in me and through me. Let what he has created as a desire within me be worked out through me so that others can see it. What he's done inwardly, he wants to do outwardly. This word work out is used in gardening and farming. Now you know that I'm an expert in gardening and farming, right? I don't know anything. I figure I'm going to pull up to the, to the farm or the garden of Kroger and Food Fair. And actually, I don't even have to do that. My wife does that for me. But when I was growing up, my mother had a garden. I couldn't figure out why in the world. At two and a half acres, we moved outside the city about 20 miles and uh, had two and a half acres, and a part of it wasn't covered by trees. It was all in the open air. And my dad would get a tiller, and he'd go out in that ground, and he'd till up a portion of that ground. And then my mother would come back, and she'd put seed in that ground. And the water, she, dad ran a hose out to that garden so that out of our well, couldn't water it all the time, or you'd empty the well. But out of that well, you'd be able to water the garden when it desperately needed to be watered. Ran a hose out there. And little by little, you'd see it peeking up through the ground. My mother would go out there in the early morning hours. I'm talking about early morning hours. 
She'd go out with a hoe and she'd go out with a shovel and she'd work in that garden and she'd weed out the things that were stealing the nutrients away from the plants. And she had corn and tomatoes and various kinds of beans and squash and other things. And while I didn't like to work in it, I had to on occasion. I mean, if you're going to have a garden, it's going to be productive. You've got to be willing to work it out. You've got to be willing to get involved like a miner goes in and pulls out the riches that are in the soil, like a problem that's worked out, a math problem that's worked out to its answer. God intends for us individually, personally, not to just be saved inwardly, but to work outwardly that salvation so that others can see Jesus in us. Too many of our spiritual lives look like barren fields, uncultivated and undeveloped. Let me say it again. Too many of us, our spiritual lives look like barren fields, uncultivated and undeveloped. You know, you can have a garden and you can do nothing to it and you might be able to harvest a few things out of it, but you will never get everything out of it unless you go work it out. Unless you get involved and you put the energy and the effort into it. You see, sometimes we think that grace is opposed to working. Grace is not opposed to working. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to working. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace should lead us to be people who want to work in cooperation with God so that the fields of our lives can become as fruitful as possible so that others can see the inward work of God on the outside of our lives. I think of the story of a country farmer who was visited by his new pastor. And the pastor surveyed this farm for the very first time, and he commented, he said, John, this is a great farm that you have, that you and God have. The farmer thought about what the pastor said, looked around for a moment, he said, thank you, pastor, but you ought to have seen it five years ago when God had it all by himself. (laughs) And that's where a lot of us are. It's where a lot of us are. You ought to see our lives. What God has done in us can't be seen through us because we're not cooperating with God. We have a generation that are not cooperating with God. They're not saying, oh God, what I want more than anything is you. What I want more than anything is the truth of your word. What I want more than anything is to live outwardly what you have done inwardly in my life. I want to cooperate with you so that my inward salvation gets seen outwardly by others. That's what he's talking about. It was William Barclay who I think had a definition that best fits what I'm trying to say. He said a saint is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. A saint is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. Amen? Amen? Are you all with me? makes it easier to believe in God. Why? Because it's not just something that's done inwardly. It's something that's done outwardly. And others can see the reality of the salvation that we enjoy, that we are different. We're supposed to be light in the midst of a dark world. If you don't see the world as dark, you don't have a biblical worldview. How do you work out the... The, the salvation. How do you work out this salvation? You get into his word. You gather with God's people. You share your faith. You spend time praying. Uh, you get involved in serving others. You, you do these things that are the basic disciplines of the Christian life. And in the process, you keep yielded and surrendered to God. And you ask God to take control of your heart and control of your life. He's, pr- he's 
produced within you the will to do it, and he'll produce within you the ability to do it. A lot of us are happy just to be going to heaven, that we're going to escape hell. But the reality is God wants to bring heaven to us today. And God wants this salvation to be worked out through our lives so that it can be realized by us and by others who are looking at us. If we're going to be lights in this dark and perverse generation, we have to work out our salvation so others can see Christ in us. So let me just ask you a question. If somebody pulls up close to your life, do they see Jesus? Do they see eternal life? Do they see the salvation that God has wrought, wrought inwardly? Do they see the reality of a faith that's genuine, that's lived out, that others recognize, that you're not ashamed of? Can they see the changes going on? Can they see the weeds being pulled out? Can they see the problems being solved? Can they see the riches, the riches that God has given? Can they see them being extracted and applied? Can, can they see it? The Apostle Paul comes and says, look, if you're going to be the lights that shine in a world that is dark with crookedness and perversity. you got to work it out. you got to cooperate with God. Secondly, he says you got to talk it up. It's the opposite of talking it down. Now, some of us have a personality that's, you know, you see the glass half empty. Some of you have a personality that sees the glass half full. Some of you just wish you had a glass of water at this moment. I understand. But the point is, he says here we have to talk it up. Look, he goes on to say, verse 14, he says, do all things. Please circle the word all. You know what that means? That means when you get up to come to church and you have to do things that, you know, are not as pleasant as it used to be because of the circumstances in which we find ourselves, you do all things. When you get up on Monday morning and you have to go to work and it's not always so convenient or so easy, or when you have to crank up the lawnmower and you have to push it around the yard or ride it around the yard when you'd rather be doing other things, he says, do all things. That The Greek text emphasizes everything, not just some things, everything. And notice what he says, do all things without complaining without complaining and disputing. Talk it up. You know, we talk down our Christianity so often. We're so negative so many of the times. It's no wonder the world around us isn't interested in the Jesus we know. Dennis Prager is a radio talk show host, and he's a conservative commentator. He's a Jew as well. He has a commentary on, on the book of Exodus. I bought it several years ago. I wanted to see a Jewish perspective on the book of Exodus. But in one of his books that I have, Happiness is a, is a Serious Problem. This is what he writes. Unhappy religious people pose a real challenge to faith. If their faith is so impressive, why aren't these devoted adherents happy? There are only two possible reasons. Either they are not practicing their faith correctly, or they are practicing their faith correctly, and the religion itself is not conducive to happiness. He goes on, most outsiders assume the latter reason. Unhappy religious people should therefore think about how important being happy is, if not for themselves, then for the sake of their religion. He concludes, unhappy, let alone angry religious people, provide more persuasive arguments for atheism and secularism than do all the arguments of the atheists. We'd have to agree, wouldn't we? Paul says not only do we work it out, work it outwardly, what God has worked inwardly, he says we talk it up. 
We, we, we show ourselves to be people of joy and happiness. We show ourselves to be people who are positive, even in the midst of some negative circumstances. That one writer calls our society a culture of complaint. He says that Americans have an, are, are a nation of whiners. We have it better, he says, than any generation that's gone before us, and much better than the vast majority of the world. The standard of living, the rate of employment, the cost of food and fuel, almost every economic and social standard that can be measured when adjusted for inflation and income are better by far today than ever before. Yet we talk like it has never been worse. Anyone, he says, who doesn't complain is thought odd and strangely out of step. You don't believe that? Then you don't have a social media account. You want, to get, you want to be depressed? Just get you a social media account. Connect yourself with a bunch of friends, and you will find people not encouraging, not sharing family photos. They do all of those things, but you will find people who are constantly, I'm just, I just got to have a, here comes the word, a rant. Here comes my, my rant for the day. And then we wonder why people look at us and they say, you know, I don't know that I really need your Christ. I don't really know that I need your Christianity. I mean, non-Christians will never be attracted to Christ by the continual strife and contentions among, among the saints. We get on there and we have a rant and we post our opinion and then people go believe it and then they, can, they, they get into an argument with one another and we sit back and we rejoice. Man, isn't this great? We're having a debate. It may be great for the sake of debate, but it's not great for the sake of Christ. And notice what he says here. Do all things, all things, even your social media account. Do all things without complaining. That has to do with the attitude. That has to do with what's going on within you. That's the initial activity, the initial attitude that gives birth to what comes next. What's your attitude? When people see you, do they see an attitude of somebody that loves Jesus? And then he says, do it without disputing. It has a legal sense to it. We have lawyers in our church, men and women. We thank God for them, good men and women. I have to say that because they'll sue me. But good men and women, lawyers in our church, and what are they taught to do? Well, they're mediators. They work things out. They negotiate. But what are they taught to do? They're taught how to argue. That's what he's talking about. Some of you live for argument. Paul says, you want to be a light in a perverse, in a crooked world? A world where it's filled with darkness, you work outwardly, work it out. You work outwardly the salvation that God has worked inwardly. And you talk it up. You talk up the Bible, and you talk up Christ, and you talk up your church, and you talk up these things of God, and you talk up the ways of God, and you talk it up. You don't let yourself get caught up in any area of your life filled with complaining. That's the attitude and disputing. That's the action. What results from that kind of an attitude? Just think about it. And then what does he say? Instead of complaining and debating, what does he say? When we don't do that kind of stuff, listen to how he puts it, verse 15, that you may become, when you put away complaining and disputing, you become blameless. Number one, that's your reputation. That's what other people see about you. That's what other people know about you. 
Then he uses the word harmless. That's what's going on within you. That's the sincerity of your heart. The Greek word for harmless is used of a prescription which is useful but harmless. You ever watch those, uh, ever watch those uh, commercials for medicines? <laughs> you know, they tell you about what all this medicine will do, but at the very end of the commercial, uh, it'll let your heart, hair will fall out, your eyes will bug out, your arms will fall off, your legs will fall off, your teeth will come out, and you could die from it. I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but you understand what I'm saying? And you wonder, do I, you know, if the doctor prescribes that, do I really want to take it or not? He's talking about something that's harmless, a prescription that's useful, but it's harmless. It was a word that was used about milk and wine that weren't mixed with water. He's talking about something that's genuine and sincere in the place of this complaining and disputing. You're to have a reputation of being blameless. You're to be a harmless genuine, sincere individual. You're to be the children of God, he says, without fault. The, the word refers to the sacrifices that were brought in the Jewish system of worship. They would bring the lamb, and what would they do? The priest would inspect the lamb to make sure that it was without fault, that it was worthy of being offered as a sacrifice to God. In other words, Christian purity is blameless in the sight of the world. It's sincere within itself, and it's fit. It fits. It's fit to stand the scrutiny of God. It's something that shows itself not to be contentious, not to be disputing, but something that is blameless and harmless and without fault. You say, Pastor, in a world in which we live, if I live that way, I'll get run over. No, you won't. No, you won't. As a matter of fact, you may get blessed more than you ever thought you were going to get blessed. Do you, do you remember the story of Noah? Do you remember the story of Noah? It says in Noah's day that the imagination of their hearts was evil how often? Continually. Violence was everywhere. But in the midst of all of that darkness, that perversity, there was one man and his family that the Bible says were righteous. They were righteous. And God blessed them, and God saved alive that family. What I'm saying to you is that God intends for us to be a people who not only work it out, but he intends us to be a people who talk it up. If all you're doing is running down your church and running down your Lord and running down your Bible and running down other Christians and running down what's going on around you, what's going on, running down what's going on at your house and running down, running down, running down, no wonder the world isn't interested in the gospel. Do you hear what he's telling you? He's saying by working it out and by talking it up, what are we in essence doing? We are, are, are you with me? We are advancing the gospel. By working out our salvation, what God has worked inwardly, he works, we, we work with him, cooperate with him so that he works it outwardly. When we talk up our faith and our God and others, and we refuse to be filled with complaining and disputing, and we become people with a good reputation, blameless and harmless and without fault, the end result is that we advance the gospel. And that's what Paul was concerned with. Back in chapter 1, you remember when he says to the Philippians, he says, I, I want to thank you for partnering with me because you've helped me to, what, advance the gospel. 
And you remember when they sent Epaphroditus to check on him and they found him under arrest in Rome and Paul says to him, listen, listen, you you might've thought that that stopped the advance of the gospel, but quite the contrary, my arrest, my Roman arrest has really served to advance the gospel. And then he comes in chapter two and he says, you want to advance the gospel? Have a better attitude. Learn to talk up the things of God, not talk them down. Learn not to be a contentious, a disputing kind of a personality, always looking for an argument. In other words, to shine as the stars in a dark night, we must walk the talk, and we must talk the walk. Did you get that? To shine as the stars in the dark of night, we must walk the talk, and we have to talk the walk. Are you glad to be a Christian? Are you glad to know the Lord? Do other people hear you praising God or do they hear you complaining? Hey, you want to know how how, how quickly that can happen? Just sit at a red light when it turns green a second too long, right? Or just get in line at one of the fast food restaurants. Let me me, me encourage you to do something. Here's, Here's the proof I'm talking about. Pull into the drive through Wait on the 12 cars ahead of you. Finally get to the window to tell you that the coffee is not fresh. It's going to take five more minutes to get it fresh. (laughs) And when you pull up to the window, yeah. You, You don't say... There were six cars ahead of me. Why didn't you put the coffee on before I got up here? Do you know what the person behind that window will do? They will look at you and they don't ever see smiles. They get lots of complaints. I get lots of complaints. I got people that are complaining about anything and everything. Do you? It's not the way Christians are supposed to live their lives. There was a police officer that pulled a driver over and asked for his license and registration. And the driver, the driver asked, you know, officer, what's wrong? I didn't go through any red lights. I wasn't speeding. And the officer replied, no, no, you weren't. But I saw you waving your fist as you swerved around that lady driving in the left lane. And I further observed your flushed and angry face as you shouted at the driver of the Hummer who cut you off. And how you pounded your steering wheel when the traffic came to a stop near the bridge. And the man replied to the officer, says, is, is, that a, is that a crime officer? The officer replied, no. But when I saw that Jesus loves you and so do I bumper sticker on the car, I figured this car had to be stolen. <laughs> it wouldn't be funny if it weren't so true, right? He says, look, if you're going to be a light in the darkness of the world around you, you got to work it out. you got to cooperate with God. And what God has worked inwardly in your salvation, let him work outwardly through you so that others can see that salvation. Your life being sanctified, set apart. If you're not any different than you were a year ago, something's wrong. Changing little by little, little by little, moment by moment. God's working in you and God's changing you. And that salvation is getting worked out through you so that other people see the difference Christ is making. And you talk it up. 
You stop the complaining. You stop the disputing. You stop having the rants. You stop looking for somebody to have an argument with. You stop carrying a chip on your shoulder and just daring somebody to knock it off so that you can get into a fight with them. You become blameless and harmless and, as he says here, without fault. You talk it up. You say, I'm so thankful to know Jesus. I'm so grateful for what God's done for me. I'm so thankful for the blessings that I have in this life. I'm so thankful I didn't have to ride a horse and buggy to church today. I got to ride in a nice car. It's air conditioned. I'm thankful I had gas money to put in that car. I'm thankful that I have money to be able to eat afterwards. I'm thankful for the clothes I have on my back. You know, what a difference that would make. One author said the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. We're not talking about compromising truth. We never compromise truth. But there's a way to stand for truth without being obnoxious in the process. God wants us to be lights in a dark world. Let me ask you a question. Can anybody see a difference in your life that Jesus is making? You're saved. You know that you're going to escape hell. But has heaven come to visit your soul? And is it changing you from the inside out? And does anybody even recognize that you're different because you know Jesus? Do they hear it in the way you talk, in the speech, the things that you say, the way you lift up, or the way you tear down? God wants us to be lights in a dark world. And he's talking about advancing the gospel. You say, I want to be a good witness. There it is. There it is. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Wow. God wants to shine his light through us to a dying world.